we're excited to share that the following offer has been extended through the end of the week. We hope you become a member today. Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code daily brief to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. Hi, this is Chris Cotnor, executive producer of the DSR Network's family of podcasts. I wanted to tell you about an exciting opportunity we have for a podcast producer. Our ideal applicant will have a deep interest and background in international and domestic issues, podcast production experience, and our desire to help grow the podcast. The person will also take the lead on promoting programming on social media and potentially could co-host podcasts, must be comfortable working with very high-level guests worldwide, including current government officials, strong academic background in political science, international affairs, or public policy required, excellent writing skills, a familiarity with WordPress, the Riverside podcasting platform, and a willingness to do whatever it takes is essential. If you're interested in learning more about this opportunity, please email us at info at the dsrnetwork.com. That's info at the dsrnetwork.com. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10, 28, two, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I'm coming to you from Washington, D.C. Today, we are here to have a little discussion about China from multiple perspectives. I'm delighted that we are joined by our friend Dmitry Alperovich. Dmitry is the executive chairman of the Silverado Policy Accelerator. How are you doing today, Dmitry? Great. Thanks for having me. And we are joined by an old friend, Josh Rogan. Josh is a columnist for the Global Opinion section of the Washington Post. That's probably where you've seen his name. But he's also the author of a really good book, which I'd been hoping to talk to him about for a while, called Chaos Under Heaven. Trump, Xi, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Uh, it came out a while ago, but it's apropos to this discussion. So congratulations on it belatedly, Josh. Thanks. Great to be with you. Great to have you here. We'll be joined at some point, theoretically, by Ed Luce, but I'm going to um, forge right in. The idea for this discussion came actually out of Twitter exchange, probably the only good thing that's come out of Twitter in, in recent weeks where we were 
talking about different perspectives on China. Ed had written a column on China. I had written a column on China. Dimitri had some comments on it. He he took exception, I think, to some of the things we were saying. And he said, you know, we should have a debate about China. And uh, I thought, well, you know, that's a good idea. So we always try to have these open discussions. But five years ago, I think, or is it five years? Four or five years ago, we had a debate between Graham Allison, who uh, wrote this book about the Thucydides trap about China, and Corey Shockey on both sides of it, although that focused more on Thucydides, I think, than it did on China. But, you know, in Washington, there's a debate, and it goes something like this. You know, there are a bunch of people who are would be characterized perhaps as being a little more hawkish or tough on China, who see it as a rising or current enemy. And there are other people who have a more mixed view of China, see it as a rival, a competitor, and as a potential um, enemy, but it leads to differences in policy thoughts. That's where this discussion on Twitter was, uh, was headed. And so let me start with you, Dimitri, just to sort of kick this off by saying, what do you have in mind here? And, and you know, why were you picking on Ed and me? <laughs> well, uh, thanks for having me, David. Uh, I think this is a really important debate uh, and discussion to have right now, which is what threat does China represent to U.S. and our interests? And what should our response be from a policy perspective? And I think the key issue for me, and, and I suspect for Josh as well, though, I don't want to put words in his mouth, is that you can look at a lot of our challenges with China, whether it's in the economic sphere, the intellectual property theft, the mercantilist trade policies, the unfair trade practices that they've been engaged in. You can look at their gobbling up of resources around the world, like critical materials and mines and so forth. You can look at the espionage. You can look at military buildup. You can look at all that and say, you know what? This can be managed. We can compete with China, we can cooperate with them on issues where it matters, and we can uh, keep this uh, at a, a threshold below armed conflict, certainly, and maybe even avoid a Cold War. And I think there's some legitimacy to that argument, except for one issue, and that's a really fundamental issue, and that issue is Taiwan. Because for the last 45 years, really since we've opened up our relations with China and, and transferred the recognition uh, of China from Taiwan to, to the mainland, uh, we have basically pretended that China is not interested or is not planning to invade Taiwan, and China was more than happy to let us pretend that. We can no longer engage in this intentional blindness. That era is over because China now clearly is very close, if it doesn't already have the capability to invade Taiwan, and clearly is demonstrating intention to do so. Previously, it was on a 2049 national rejuvenation timeline, but we know now from intelligence, from Bill Burns at the CIA and others that are saying that she's moving up that timeline from, from at least a capability perspective and demanding that the PLA have the capability to invade Taiwan by 2027. That is what is fundamentally changing this whole conversation with regards to China, certainly from my perspective, because Taiwan is crucial to U.S. interests. President Biden on now four occasions explicitly said that we will come to Taiwan's defense and on one occasion said he will send American troops to fight for Taiwan. And whether you actually believe that or not doesn't even matter because if Taiwan goes to mainland China, it'll have vast implications for our econ economic resiliency because of Taiwan's incredible share in semiconductor production, both advanced and even more mature chips. 
but also in terms of our allies, how they view our presence in the Indo-Pacific, our reputation in that part of the world, should we lose the fight for Taiwan or should we let Taiwan go to the mainland, will immediately drop to rock bottom. And in this critical region of the world where at least half of the world's trade is present, that would be disastrous for U.S. national security. So I'd like, Josh, for you to respond to it. I, I would add just contextually that it's now known that the president of Taiwan is going to go to Central America via California, and there is a possibility that the Speaker of the House would meet with her there. This has the Chinese on edge, as did the Pelosi meeting. They don't much like visits by Taiwanese presidents to the U.S. for any reason, as we've seen in the past. Uh, And uh, a former president of Taiwan, in sort of counterpoint to that, has said he's going to go and visit uh, the PRC because there are factions on this issue, even in Taiwan. Josh. Right. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. Listen, I I think the reason that we're having this discussion right now is pretty obvious. It's because U.S.-China relations are at their worst point in, you know, let's say 50 years. And that's just a fact. That's objectively true. And it causes a lot of people in Washington to, who haven't been following how we got here to all of a sudden pipe up and say, hey, this is really bad. What can we do? Maybe we should just back off. And this is the sort of spate of articles that you saw. And I'm sorry that Ed's not here because he wrote a couple of them, and I'm not picking on him, but just for example, talking about this idea that, oh, well, U.S.-China relations are so bad because Washington groupthink and congressional hawkishness and a, you know some sort of self-reinforcing escalation ladder that's caused by the fact that you know Mike Gallagher started a committee to focus on the CCP or something like that. You've read some version of these articles. And this combined with the fact that everyone sort of had to pay attention to China for a second because there was a balloon flying over our heads that came from China caused this sort of, you know, narrative to be sort of take hold that, oh, maybe the US Washington China relationship is Washington's fault, which for those of us who have been following it as closely as the three of us, but also a lot of other people in the US China community, that's not only a rewriting of history, it's sort of a, a return to what should have been a, a long lost era of focusing on the relationship like it's the weather. Oh, the weather's hot today. The weather's cold today. How do we get the weather to be lukewarm today? Which is really not the goal of U.S. strategy towards China. And this is the most important, I think, break between sort of, you know, the people, what I call the, the, the huggers, the shruggers, and the sluggers. Okay, we, in the Washington, we got three groups. We got the, the huggers. Those are the people who are committed to the U.S.-China relationship in the old frame, where we just engage, engage, engage as much as possible. You didn't mention them in your, in your lead up, David. But they're, they're still that's out That's because I'm, I'm a hugger. I think you're a shrugger. I think. Oh, a okay, a shrugger. So the, well, that's the good. shruggers are the people who are like, oh, it's not that bad. Everybody just go back to sleep. Let's just hope it all works out. <laughs> oh, and that, you know, we I should do a couple of things. Be, and of, I don't want to be that. Of course, the genocide's I mean. bad, but you know, on the other hand, what do you want? World War III, Thucydides trap, blah, blah, blah. And the sluggers who, are set, who have this basic frame of, listen, cooperation is great, engagement is great, but we don't have a partner right now. Let's be honest that the, the Xi Jinping is not doing the things that the basic things that would indicate that he has any interest in that kind of cooperation. And in that situation, the only rational thing to do is to keep the light on, but not hold our breath. And meanwhile, increase our deterrence to shore up our relationships with our allies and partners to send a clear message to Xi and Putin that they better not make any crazy moves like attack Taiwan or anything crazy like that. And so 
you know, this often gets sort of framed as like, oh, well, some people want World War III and some people don't, well, and which is really a, a disingenuous frame because everybody wants to solve the problem. The question is, do we do nothing, basically? Do we go back to the old failed engagement policies of the past? Or do we do the things that we can to protect ourselves and to up the deterrence? And I think what I'm saying, and I think Dimitri is saying, is that that's the third bucket. That's the thing that we need to do more. And, you know, it's not groupthink just because a lot of people now agree that this is a huge problem that can no longer be ignored. Groupthink is when you have a group, like a homogeneous group, right? It's like that decides on something and then ignores all the other evidence. This is different. This is lots of different types of people coming to a shared conclusion. You know, just because we all think gravity is real doesn't mean it's groupthink. It just means it's real. Okay. And so to say that GC groupthink is causing US-China relations to go bad is to ignore how we got here and to ignore all the other countries of the region that are sending a demand signal for America to do more. It's not the US versus China. It's the whole region. I just got back from Tokyo. I interviewed the prime minister. They're doubling their defense budget. Okay. Over five years, Japan, they're remilitarizing. Nothing to do with Washington groupthink. It cannot be attributed to Washington groupthink. President Yoon of South Korea is coming here next week or in two weeks. Okay. He forgave, he moved to forgive Japan for its wartime atrocities, not because of Washington groupthink, because it's in South Korea's interest. Okay. So you can't blame the groupthink for the genocide. You can't blame the groupthink for the PLA's massive military expansion and nuclear missile buildup. And you can't blame the group thing for the whole world saying, hey, we've got a problem here that we can't just wish away. Ed, by the way, has apparently had a conflict, so I'm going to have to pick up the slack here by BB for the huggers. I, I, I would certainly not want to. I would. No, no, you put me in the shruggers. I okay. would certainly not want to be a shrugger. I don't dismiss the consequences of Chinese genocide. I don't dismiss the consequences of what they've done in Hong Kong, and I certainly don't dismiss the threat that they pose to Taiwan or to the East and South China Seas. But I, I think that the, the, the critical area of differentiation has to do with level of engagement and nature of engagement. It's not, you know, I mean, I think if we all sat down and like planned out a defense budget, we might have a, an argument about a couple of percentage points. We probably wouldn't have an argument about whether we should be prepared or whether we should have a superior capabilities. I do think there is a division within Washington between people who uh, feel that we've crossed a line. This is now not just a rival, but it's an enemy. And where some of it veers a little bit towards what I consider to be Cold War thinking, where it's zero sum. China loses, we gain. And of course, that's not really a possibility in a relationship where there's 70,000 U.S. companies in China, where we import five to $600 billion a year of stuff from China, export several hundred billion dollars a year of stuff to China, and where there are a lot of big international issues that require U.S.-China collaboration, whether we like it or not. But I do know a lot of people I respect who say they're not talking to us, they're not being very constructive. We've got to put more pressure on before we engage or re-engage in a serious way. And, you know, then there are a couple of issues like Taiwan, you know, where I, I think you could have a healthy debate among, in fact, I have heard healthy debates among people in the military or former military who would debate whether the United States support for Taiwan would be whole on we're going to war alongside them to defend Taiwan, 
or it would be more like Ukraine. We're going to supply them with weapons. We're going to try to put together an international coalition behind them, but we're not going to bloody uh, put put our our troops or sailors or uh, airmen at risk. First of all, Dimitri, what do you think of but my my characterization there? And and secondly, do you ever worry that we're going too, too far? Do that we're going too far in the level of hostility with China now, or do you feel we haven't gone far enough? I think that we are reciprocating to the level of hostility that China has been expressing covertly for a large part of our relationship since 1979 and overtly, very overtly in the Xi Jinping era. With regards to Taiwan, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it's, it's despite what President Biden has said on four occasions, I don't think it's a given that the United States will go to war over Taiwan. I think politically, that will be a very challenging decision to make. I'm not sure that most of the American public wants to enter what effectively will be most likely World War III over Taiwan, despite the very serious national security implications for Taiwan. So the best solution, as, as Josh has said, is, is not to drive the country towards war, but to do whatever is possible to avoid that scenario. Because whether we go to war with China or China just takes Taiwan, and let's be clear, today at least, and probably for much of this decade, Taiwan will not be capable of defending itself against a Chinese invasion without some major, major reform that is not coming soon enough, unfortunately. And let's be clear that there is no Poland next to Taiwan to help resupply it. It's an island. It's going to be very, very challenging. We're far away. If we're not engaged militarily in the conflict, the prospects for Taiwan holding on with its existing capabilities are not good. That can change over time, but but the time frame is is not looking in our favor. So what we should be doing is enhancing our deterrence, which fundamentally means more military buildup in the Indo-Pacific, which China will not look nicely upon. It means supporting our allies. It means more basing like what we just did in the Philippines. It means sending more weapons to Taiwan, particularly anti-ship missiles, means smart mines, et cetera. All the things that are going to antagonize China. And it also means having a policy to increase our leverage over China economically and to decrease their leverage over us. Because if they think that we're completely dependent on them economically, they may decide that we're not going to intervene in a conflict over Taiwan. So on things like rare earths, diversifying our supply away from China, on things like semiconductors, increasing their dependence on us by making sure that they cannot produce indigenous semiconductors, both advanced and mature chips. Those are the types of things that we're doing, that we should be doing more of. And here's the the fundamental uh, problem, David. The people that are arguing that we should do things of that nature and also cooperate with China completely ignore the fact that China is uninterested in that. And President Xi has said that, including in the last couple of weeks, that you cannot contain China, which is effectively what we're doing, and expect a good relationship. So this idea that we're going to do what's necessary to deter an invasion of Taiwan and pretend that China is going to cooperate with us on North Korea, climate change, or any range of issues is a dream. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't extend our hand and and offer it. But if there's no party on the other side that's going to take it, well, that's such is life. I see you nodding, Josh. Right. I know. I think the his uh, just to respond to your call for engagement, I think what we hear a lot is like, oh, engagement, engagement, let's do engagement. But we don't hear a lot of specific examples because it's very clear that this is what the Biden administration tried to do. They This is what they announced. They announced that they were going to de-link confrontation, competition, and, and cooperation. 
And they set about doing that. They made an honest attempt of it, in other words. And John Kerry went and started the climate change talks. And they canceled them first because we insisted on not taking forced labor tainted materials from Xinjiang, which is a U.S. law and also, you know, supporting an ongoing atrocity. Then they canceled it the second time. Why? Because Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, which has nothing to do with climate change. So on these things where we have these shared interests, we just have to understand that, that, that Xi Jinping doesn't see it that way, that he sees this as leverage over us, which leads to the second point, which is that once we fetishize the engagement for the engagement's sake, we start to pay for it. And I think that's the risk. I think that's what the Biden people are teetering on now. You see them sort of backing off the competitive policies. I reported this in the Post last week in order to get to that high level dialogue. And then what you're doing is you're paying them to talk, which is the trap that we've been trying to get out of this whole time. So, in the, okay, well, what else can we engage them? What's the, how about science? How about bio research? That seems pretty benign. Oops, I guess we can't do that one because uh, look what happened. So, if you know, counter narcotics, great. Oh, wait, they don't, they, they refuse to stop the flow of fentanyl into our society. So what, what exactly is the good example where we haven't made a good faith attempt and they just told us to grow, screw ourselves? Now, again, I agree with Dimitri, we got to leave the light on. And, you know, on Taiwan, I think, you know, listen, David, I went to Taiwan in November and uh, I went to the, you go to all the meetings with the foreign ministry and, the, oh yeah, we're, we're going to fight. We want to maintain the status quo. We're going to do what's right. We're going to reform our defense and all. They say all the right things. They tell you exactly what you want to hear when you visit Taipei. Then I went to Penghu, the island where the attack might first come, and to check out the actual defenses. And I was surprised to see that they don't actually really. And when you talk to the people who are closest to the defenses of Taiwan, you realize that it's not a real thing. And that we're telling ourselves a story about a defense of Taiwan that's not really, doesn't actually make any sense. If they were to attack, in other words, they would take it over easily. There's nothing we could do, in other words, to stop it. This is something that Trump actually knew quite well. We're too far away. We can't get there in time. So what does that mean? It means we have to figure out a way to raise the deterrence short of invading, because also we don't know if the president at that time is going to pull that trigger. Even if it's Biden, we don't even know if he's going to push that button. So the only rational thing to do with Taiwan is to up the deterrence, to push back the Xi Jinping's timeline as far as possible. Because in the end, again, if he won't talk to us, if he won't deal with us, we're just going to have to wait him out. Okay. Same thing with Putin. There's no deal to be made with Putin. Luckily, all dictators, all totalitarian dictators eventually die sooner or later or get deposed one way or the other. That's a cold reality. That's not because people don't love engagement. That's just because people who preach engagement never seem to get around to the part of like, okay, well, what's the example that is really going to work? This is the point in the show where we take a break and we say thanks to everybody's listening in the general public. And we encourage you uh, if you want to listen to the totality of each of these podcasts, that what you do is you go become a member. You go to the dsrnetwork.com and you click on membership and it's about five bucks a month. And each one of our podcasts has about a third of its content, which is members only. And it's always really good stuff. So uh, go become a member and you can listen to the rest. For those of you who are members, stand by. 